Good morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. When they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Good morning. I think I've asked a version of this question before, but I want to ask it again. I wonder, as you've read the Bible, whether it's not all the way through ever, just a few verses here or there, or whether you've read it all the way through many times, what is the most challenging passage in the Bible that you have come across? For many, it's one of the verses that deal with God's relationship to suffering or his choice of those who would be saved. For others, it's one of the passages that speaks to the terrors of hell or the wrath of God. The first passage I remember being really stumped by was Mark seven twenty four to 28. And in it, a Gentile woman, I didn't know what that meant at the time, uh, came to Jesus and fell down at his feet. That makes sense. But the part that really got me uh, was that after having begged him, fell down at his feet, begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter, again, I had no categories for what Jesus said or what she said back to Jesus. He said, let the, so, you know, you picture this desperate woman, her daughter's being tormented. She comes to Jesus thinking he'll help her. And he says, please, she says, please help. And his reply was, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I thought, okay, well, that's odd. I mean, what's she going to say? Well, she seemed to get it because she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And there you go. And I remember thinking, okay, what in the world did I get into? 
Well, regardless of what comes to your mind, when you consider that question, what's the trickiest passage in the Bible that you know of or the hardest? The fact is there are passages in the Bible that are hard to understand. Even the Bible tells us that the Bible can be hard to understand. Peter, for instance, says that in relation to some of the things that Paul wrote, some things in them are hard for us to understand, Second Peter 3.16. Well, if you made a list, and if you know the Bible well enough to make a good list of the hard parts of the Bible, probably on that list, almost certainly in the top five, maybe in the top three, is John 6, 53 to 54. Truly I say to you, so you notice it stops at verse 40 this week, but you got to get this because this is where we're going. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And just so you don't flatten that or overly spiritualize it or treat it as if it isn't all that difficult. The fact that it is so difficult, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, is that when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And therefore, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a hard passage. Well, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Again, we're not going to get even to that passage, let alone what it means for a couple of weeks. But knowing that it is coming is necessary to make sense of this passage through verse 40. 22 to 58, John 6, 22 to 58 is one big unit and should be covered together. And I and honestly thought I was going to this morning. So if you read news and notes, you'll notice that the the, the it's a shorter passage. I got I got halfway through the week and realized, oh goodness, I'm I'm not even going to come close to this. And so you got to keep in mind, though, this is all one big story. And, and we're going to leave this, and I, I hope to remember to say this again at the end, but we're going to leave this at the point where Jesus really corrected a lot of what people were thinking, the, the misunderstanding that the crowd had about who he was and what he was doing and what he was there for and what he was offering, to the point where if it just ended there and John just jumped to another story, all of us would think, wow, that was, he, he did a lot of work there to clarify his ministry and mission and character and person and nature. But he doesn't. As much as he rattles them and what he does say and what we'll see here, the real final blow comes in the next week. And so I need you to hang on to that because this is going somewhere. We need, we need to know that it's going there to make sense of this passage. So by the time we get to the end of this passage, uh, whenever that is, though, I hope to help you make sense of it. What does Jesus mean? And even more than that, I hope to help you see through this week into that, that it is really, really good news. It sounds weird and gross and hard to understand, but it is really, really good news. And so between the two sermons, we'll see this this week, we'll see that many of those who were miraculously fed by Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, enthusiastically were seeking after him. They, they just were fed in a miraculous way, and so they enthusiastically sought after him and found him. That's this week. But then the next passage, largely because of the two verses I just read, they will angrily reject the Jesus that they sought and then found. 
Okay, so there's two main points. Before I pray, there's two main points in this whole chunk from uh, all the way through 58. The first is that Jesus, I really, really want you to hear this. Jesus will be accepted on his terms, all of his terms and only his terms, or none at all. And so the picture that we're meant to have in our heads is this. Wherever you've been, whatever life has been like, however sinful you've been or righteous, whether you're a younger brother in Jesus' story or the older brother, whether you feel unworthy or you feel worthy, whether you had a rough morning or a great morning or a rough year or decade, or you come before Jesus. And if you seek him, you will find him and he will be glad to be found and you will stand before him bringing whatever you brought. And that's okay, whatever you've been. Jesus will offer himself to you. And you will receive him on his terms or you will not be received by him. You have to understand that. Jesus is domesticated today. Because he is gentle and lowly to those who receive him in faith, we act as if we will come before Jesus and negotiate with him. Here are my terms, Jesus. You can take them or leave them. And you think maybe some of us will end up with better terms or easier... You will come before Jesus and you will eat his flesh and you will drink his blood or he will not receive you. But all who will, all who will receive him, he will give the right to become children of God. That's the first point. And the second is that accepting Jesus on his terms, no matter how strange or severe they seem, is the one and only path to eternal life. And so the main takeaway for us then, Grace, this morning and throughout our time in John and throughout our time in the Bible and for the rest of our lives on earth, is to find Jesus' terms. What are they, Jesus? If the only path to eternal life is to receive you on your terms, what are your terms? And so find them. Listen carefully. Read eagerly. Study carefully to find his terms and accept them entirely. So let's pray that it would be so. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the hard passages as well as the easy passages. Thank you for the ones that have sharp corners and the ones that are soft. Thank you for the passages that are encouraging and remind us of your pleasure that is on us. And thank you for the passages that are challenging and convicting and force us to realize that we have recreated Jesus in our own image rather than acknowledge that we've been made and are called to his. Thank you for all of the passages in your word because we need all of them. You've given all of them to us to equip us fully for the godly lives that you have called us to in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so please, open our eyes this morning even a little bit more to the terms of Jesus, to the nature and person of Jesus. May we be eager to receive him in that, in all of that, that we might have everlasting life. And so I pray specifically for those stuck in sin for those stuck believing things about Jesus that aren't true, which is all of us in some sense, would we see Jesus freshly this morning and come to him eagerly this morning? And for those who have not yet sought him with all of their hearts and therefore not yet found him, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. pray all this in his mighty name. Amen. Seeking Jesus, first couple of verses, first three verses deal with this. The relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day was strained but consistent. It was steady, almost straight across. 
He continually called them out for their hypocrisy, and they continually accused him of all kinds of blasphemy. It was contentious, it was tough, but it was predictable. Steady tension. The relationship between Jesus and the masses, however, was a bit more complicated. In ways and for reasons that are not always clear to us when we read the stories and the Gospels, the crowds seem to seamlessly move back and forth between adoration and abhorrence, between praise and persecution. It would just go back and forth. It's like watching a a tennis match sometimes, back and forth. One minute they loved Jesus, and the next minute they despised him. Even in this passage, the crowds that seek Jesus at significant expense to themselves, we'll talk about that in a little bit, one day, literally the day before, will reject him entirely 24 hours later. Well, having just been miraculously fed by him, again, feeding of the 5,000, last week's sermon, the people became so enthralled with Jesus and what they thought he might be for them that they tried to make him king. We saw that in 6.15. And although Jesus slipped away before they could do so, the crowd was not yet done with him. They were, they were still impressed, or impressed enough by him that they were determined to track him down. You, you may remember that at the end of last time, Jesus sent the disciples ahead in a boat to go without him, and he slipped off by himself to pray, and the crowds were sort of left behind. And that's where verse 22 picks up. On the next day, so that Jesus walking on the water, came to the disciples in the night, and then they continued on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, the next day, the crowd remained on the other side, where the feeding happened, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not gotten on it with the disciples. So they saw the disciples got on it and sailed away. They saw that Jesus wasn't with them, but that the, disciple, that the disciples had gone away alone. Well, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor the disciples, they got into the boats. We're not exactly sure what this means, if they were tourist boats or they knew the people, they were friends and family or what, but somehow they got themselves into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, assuming that's where he had gone. That's the direction they headed. Well, there's about to be a subtle fulfillment of prophecy here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's account, Jesus told his hearers, everyone who seeks me, finds me. In one sense, that's awesome. That's really good news to tell your friends and your neighbors and your your kids and your parents. Seek Jesus, people of grace, and you will find him. Discouraged moms, seek Jesus and you will find him. Bored kids, kids are you bored? Seek Jesus and you will find him. Abdicating husbands, broken sinners, lonely singles, fearful seniors, Uncertain seekers and angry skeptics seek Jesus and you will find him. He wants to be found by you. He will be found by you. And as we see in this passage, hungry, callous, or hungry, curious crowds seek Jesus and you will find him. Indeed, as he promised, the crowds that sought him found him, even as you and I will if we will truly seek him today. But here's the key, Grace. In finding Jesus, the crowds help us to see another lesson as well. 
The real blessing, somehow mark this in your mind. The real blessing is not finding Jesus. Sounds like it would be, and it is perhaps in some way. But the real blessing is not in finding in Je- not in finding Jesus, but in wanting Jesus once you've found him. Or in wanting the Jesus that you find. Impressed with what they'd seen and heard, the crowd sought Jesus across an entire day and an entire lake. But the irony is that once they found him, they would quickly reject him because he wasn't what they were really looking for. They had created an idea of Jesus in their heads, like many of us have. It was a combination of things actually taught in the Bible, in the scriptures, and also their own selfish desires. But the real Jesus was different. He didn't come for the reasons they'd set their hearts on, and he didn't tell them the things they wanted to hear. We'll come back to this and really press on this as we continue to move through this gospel, through chapter 6. But for now, Grace, be careful. Let this be a warning to us. Let this be a warning light or a warning siren that goes off for us to seek Jesus for who he really is and what he really offers, which is by far greater than whatever you might try to replace either of those things with, not what you have made him out to be. Seek Jesus and you will find him. With that then, or what then was it that the crowds found when they, when they found Jesus? When they finally came to him, he made four main pronouncements to them. And each of them began gradually to turn them away from him. Jesus commanded them to seek true satisfaction, true salvation from him, through him, ultimately in him. And then he told them also that doing so, or the ability to do so, any of those things, was a gift from God. Let's, let's look at each of those. Fresh off of being miraculously fed by Jesus, an unsuccessful attempt to make him king, a fairly decent nighttime boat ride. After all those things, the crowd who sought Jesus finally found him and began questioning him. Look at 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's kind of a strange question since they were just with them the night before. Regardless, nevertheless, the highly, highly excited and motivated crowd made their way up to Jesus and asked him, a question and most likely expected Jesus to be impressed by the fact that they were impressed with him. They were used to people longing to be popular and to receive the kind of attention they were, they were giving Jesus. They were used to dealing with leaders who could be controlled by the flattery and adulation, by the whims of the masses, but Jesus was different, wasn't he? On the contrary, He uniquely and completely lived for the pleasure of the Father. In addition, Jesus saw through their unbelieving belief. He knew that they were not there for the right reasons, and so he began to dissect, to pull apart, to examine and expose, to reveal to them their false belief. He began to help them see the true state of their hearts, which for anyone truly seeking Jesus is a gift. For those who have ulterior motives, it's angering. In simplest terms, Jesus began by telling them both why they were wrongly there and also why they should have been there or why they would have been rightly there. If questioned, 
just think about this for a minute. I don't know if there's a spokesperson or, or exactly how this crowd is interacting with Jesus, but if questioned, I wondered how a, I wonder how would a spokesperson from that crowd have described the that which they were seeking? What 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 was it exactly that they understood themselves to be looking for in Jesus? How would how would a spokesperson have answered the question? Why why did you come? Why did you just do what you just did to get over here and get before Jesus? What do you really want from him? I wonder what I wonder what the spokesperson would have said if they were being completely honest. In other words, I wonder how closely the reason the crowds believed themselves to be there matched up with the real reasons Jesus was about to reveal that they were there. And I wonder largely because you and I find ourselves in this position all the time. We often have far more confidence in our own understanding of our our, our hearts and our minds, of our thoughts and our motives, of why we do what we do and want what we want and think what we think than we should. One of the passages along these, these lines that just, for whatever reason, has stuck in my head for many, many years. It's 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is the Apostle Paul weighing out his understanding of his own heart and his own self. And he says this, I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, I think my motives are pure. I think, I think my desires are right, which often is the case for you and I as well. But here's the key. And he says, I'm unaware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. In other words, that doesn't mean there isn't anything. It is the Lord who judges me. Let us learn from this grace. Let's be humble. I, I imagine the crowds thought they were doing good things. I, I, I imagine they thought they were seeking to do the will of God. And to, But let's, let's be humble. Let's read God's word. Let's pray often. Let's ask others to help us consistently to see ourselves rightly, because on our own, we're not great judges. Regardless of what they believed about themselves, regardless of how the spokesman would have answered the question, they were actually there, Jesus said, simply because he had filled their bellies. Look at 26. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up, truly, truly, we don't talk like that. It means, listen, you need to hear this. I don't know if you're going to listen, but you should. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. That's, a, that's an added layer of rebuke. If you've been with us in John, I hope you pick up on this already. It's a subtle double condemnation. It would have been insufficient because Jesus has rebuked people for what I'm about to say before. It would have been insufficient. Jesus Jesus pointed that out already. If the crowd simply followed Jesus because of his miraculous sign, he'd rebuke them for doing that already. You remember that? You follow me only because you've seen signs. You think of me like a a freak show, like a circus act. It would have been insufficient for the crowd to simply follow Jesus because of his miraculous signs. He he was more than a sign worker. He was the the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah. But at least acknowledging that, the crowd would have been closer to the true nature of Jesus. But Jesus accused the crowd of being even more base still. Their appetite was entirely physical. They didn't even have an appetite for the signs in, in that sense. They were satisfied by mere physical food, the fish and the bread. And again, then, the crowd that had followed Jesus wrongly simply because they ate their fill of physical food and wanted more. 
But worse still, as we saw at the end of last week, and as we'll see again and again, they were not only content with mere physical food, they were content with a mere physical king and kingdom as well. Well, rather, rather than that, the crowd should have, Jesus said, followed him because he offered true nourishment, true satisfaction that comes from him alone. True, he offered to be their true king and to bring them into a true kingdom, not, not the things, the physical fish, bread, and victory that he could give them. Instead of seeking short-term belly food and worldly victory then, Jesus said, you were meant to seek me. You're meant to come to me for everlasting soul food and a heavenly king and kingdom. So in 27, we read, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I'll give it to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Grace, many, many, many things are promising true satisfaction. Many, many, many things are promising you true satisfaction. You, you literally can't drive down the road. You can't listen to the radio or a podcast. You cannot pull up a website or watch any kind of media without encountering some advertisement promising to fulfill the longings you didn't even know you had, but now you do. Even a few minutes ago, it's probably hard to let's give them a little bit of grace here. These crowds, we don't understand what it's like, most of us, to not know that you are going to have food this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow. And we don't know what that's like. It's probably hard for us to understand what it was like for many in Jesus' day to not be certain of food and water on a regular basis. The, The promise of even just the physical. Reality would have been really good news to them. It would have been understandably appealing. But again, Jesus was offering something so much more. He offered food that would never get stale or moldy and that would never run out. He was offering to give them, as confirmed by the Father's seal on him, food that endures to eternal life. He alone could give that food, Grace. And he was offering it to them. True satisfaction only comes from Jesus. You can't get it anywhere else. He's the only distributor of it. True satisfaction comes only from Jesus. Do you want to be truly, fully, and eternally satisfied? Jesus and only Jesus can give that to you. It comes from him alone. This was a a mild rebuke of their desires, but it was the beginning of Jesus' dissection of their hearts and motives. And it was the beginning of what would truly turn them away. So seek it from Jesus. Second, seek it through Jesus. Even if they were still confused, the crowd seemed interested. Okay, all right, tell us, tell us a little bit more. Jesus' offered imperishable. Jesus' offer of imperishable, enduring food was genuinely appealing. And Jesus' command... To work for it seems appropriate. Therefore, they asked, what must we do to be doing the work of God? So, so again, that's verse 28. See what he said in verse 27? Look at it. Do not work for food that perishes. In other words, work for a different kind of food. And so their question made sense. What, what, must, we be, what, what, what must we do then? to be doing the work of God, to get this kind of food. 
The crowd had worked significantly to make their way to Jesus the day before, to seek him through the night, to acquire passage on numerous boats to get across the Sea of Galilee, to where they only assumed Jesus had gone, and then to finally track him down when they made shore. And all of that work, as we just saw, for merely physical things. Jesus had to correct that faulty goal. He had just done that. He had just corrected their faulty goal of merely physical things. Here he would confront their faulty understanding of the work necessary to achieve the right goal. The wrong goal is merely physical. The right goal is spiritual. The wrong work is to do it on your own. The right work is this. Jesus answered them, this is the work. I'll tell you what it is. This is it. You believe in the one, you believe in him who, the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Grace, listen to this. God saves and satisfies sinners only through the work of believing in Jesus. This too, as we're about to see, was not what the crowd had come to get from Jesus. They they came to him asking what they needed to do to honor God, and Jesus turned it around from their works to their trust in his, his works, in him. And the result of Jesus being increasingly clear on who he was and what he offered was a growing wedge between expectation and reality. What they thought they were getting in this transaction and what Jesus was really offering, and consequently between the crowd's former approval and increasing disapproval. Seek satisfaction from Jesus, through Jesus, and third, ultimately, in Jesus. The third aspect of Jesus' teaching that continued to unsettle the crowd drive them away, concerned further clarification of what God really wanted from his people. If they were to accept Jesus' teaching that honoring God was not about what they needed to do, but what Jesus, who he was, and what he would do, you're going to need some proof. You, you got it. Okay. If, if that's the case, you got to prove it to us. So they asked, what sign, what sign do you do that we, we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Remember who these people are. Remember what they had just seen. Remember why they chose to follow him here anyway. And they asked, what sign do you do? What work do you perform? How is that even a question? They were there because Jesus had just miraculously fed them and 19,000 of their closest friends from two fish and a few pieces of bread. Not even a full day earlier. What sign do you, do you offer? It sounds like a strange question, doesn't it? And it is, but, but there's a little more to it. Their follow-up question and Jesus' reply to their follow-up question makes better sense of their mindset. Just look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What does that mean? Okay, I'm going to tell you. It seems that they had made a connection between the food Jesus had just given them and the manna God had given their ancestors. And the idea is this, and it's, a, it's actually a good idea. The idea is that they were wondering if Jesus was greater than Moses, since his claims certainly were greater than Moses about himself. Moses gave the Israelites food to eat in supernatural ways as well, but he didn't make the claims about himself or his food that Jesus had just made. It's as if they were saying to Jesus, hey, that's great what you just did. We've seen this kind of thing before. 
You're going to have to do better than that if you want us to believe the claims you're making on top of those that Moses made. Well, Jesus' reply suggested he took their statement to mean something just like that, because sure enough, he didn't back down, for he truly was and eternally is greater than Moses. And so in 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, me, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The Jews in Jesus' day consistently revered Moses to the point where he seemed to functionally overshadow God at times for them. Jesus corrected that error by explaining that the man of the eight wasn't actually from Moses, it was from God. More fundamentally and more importantly and more spectacularly, though, Jesus corrected the greater error. Jesus, grace, Jesus. This is why we sing the songs that we sing. Jesus, not Moses, manna or fishes and loaves is the true bread from God. Jesus is the source of all true nourishment. True salvation and sanctification are not only from him, not only through him, They are in him. They are him. That is an awesome claim. That is an awesome reality. And it was completely disorienting to this crowd that had come to him just to get their bellies filled again and to get a king to conquer these mean Romans. Grace, let's, let's be a people who cry out continually and together for God's help to stop looking elsewhere for the things that only can be found in Jesus. How much time and energy and money and mental bandwidth and anxiety do we waste day after day after day looking in the wrong places for the wrong things when they are Jesus alone and found in Jesus alone? Who will deliver us from this body of death, this this sinful tendency to join this crowd in seeking things that we need not to seek in places that we need not to seek them. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Predictably, however, the crowd still didn't get it. In language strikingly similar to the woman at the well who was offered water that if she drank it, she would never be thirsty again. They were just offered food that if they ate it, they would never be hungry again. And language strikingly similar to that. They said to him, verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Just as the woman couldn't imagine anything more than some kind of special physical water, these people couldn't imagine anything more than some kind of special physical bread. If our own hearts weren't so fickle, if we weren't so prone to do this ourselves, it would be staggering how secular the very people of God had become. Leaving no doubt and casting aside any remaining subtlety, Jesus said to them plainly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As we've seen over and over, Jesus declared himself to be the true sustenance, salvation, and satisfaction of every soul. This means that it is never physical food that truly satisfies even your belly. You go home this afternoon and you're going to eat something and probably something tasty and good and you were going to feel hungry and then you aren't. But what this means is that even that is the work of Jesus, not the food by itself. He does it through the food, but it is him that satisfies. And more importantly, it means that it is never a person or experience or purchase that satisfies your soul. 
at best, those things merely point to the soul satisfaction found only in Jesus. Grace, it's important for us to see that more than simply addressing the question of his inquisitors and correcting their errors, Jesus was revealing his true nature, his truest nature to them. And what's called, there are seven what are called I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. This is the first, I am the bread of life. Still to come, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine and the one that binds them all together. John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It is in this Jesus that all our soul's desires are satisfied and our sins are forgiven. In light of all we've seen and heard from Jesus, in light of all the ways he'd taught and corrected and taught and corrected, and in light of the several signs and wonders we've already seen from him, we've come back to the question of how those who walked among him, the very children of the promise, could miss all of this so completely and thoroughly. Or, on the other hand, conversely, we're right to wonder why some, like the disciples, really did believe in him and receive him in faith. Jesus answers that in 36. But I say to you that you have seen me and who I am, the image of God and all that I've done, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father, and here's the answer, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus will become even clearer in his answer to this question in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But the underpinning of that claim is found in the verses I just read. In them, Jesus reiterated the problem. Namely, that even though the crowds saw and heard supernatural things from him, even though he was the Son of God standing before them, they did not believe. But as I said, in in them, Jesus also started to unpack the reason. All, but only those given to Jesus by the Father will come to Jesus. All, but only those given to Jesus by the Father will understand his teaching and appreciate his miracles and believe in his name and follow his commands forever. For none given to Jesus by the Father will miss Jesus or forsake Jesus. None will be lost. All will be raised and all according to the sovereign, gracious will of God. Jesus taught the crowds that salvation and satisfaction were from him, through him, and ultimately in him. Those three things really put a wedge between him and the worldly kingdom and worldly satisfaction-driven crowds. And yet the real dividing line is found in the next few verses. And Jesus' command for all of his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus was different and more than anyone expected. His claims and charges were different and more than anyone expected. As we saw in this passage and if Seen already in John, Jesus will be accepted on his terms, all and only his terms, or none at all. And as we've seen today also, previously, that accepting Jesus on his terms, no matter how strange or severe they seem, 
is the only path to eternal life. The crowds ebbed and flowed in their desire to hear and see these things from Jesus. And so consequently, in a foreshadowing of the shocking turn of from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, the very crowd who sought to make Jesus the king before would reject him today. The same enthusiasm that sought him yesterday would turn to distancing themselves from him today. There are a number of reasons for this, which will become clearer and clearer in chapter 6. But at the heart of them all was that they were seeking to find satisfaction from, through, and ultimately in things other than Jesus. But to do that in Jesus is a gift from God. So let's ask now. Let's take a minute and pray. Let's ask him for that gift now to remain in us and to be given to us as we receive it in faith.